We'll hear argument next in case 095327, Holland versus Florida. Mr. Scheer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. It is undisputed that Petitioner was not provided notice that the State Supreme Court had denied his post-conviction appeal and had issued its mandate, with the result being that his EDPA statute of limitations expired. The very day he learned this, Petitioner immediately prepared a pro se habeas petition and filed it within 24 hours. Before this, Petitioner had taken What in the record shows us that the failure to tell him that by the lawyer was anything other than negligence? What in the record suggests that the lawyer just, as many lawyers do, forgot to call the client, forgot to send him something? What shows that this is more than negligence? Well, first of all, we have what the Eleventh Circuit characterized Mr. Collins' conduct as, which was gross negligence. And what we have here is a confluence. I'm trying to find the basis for that finding. Okay. We have a repeated pattern. For example, first of all, we have to go back in terms of what happened in State court. First, we have Mr. Collins' assurances to Mr. Holland that he would, in fact, file his Federal or was aware of the State. But that's what his intent was. Correct. People say, I'm going to do something, and they fail to do it often because something else comes up, because something's happened. That doesn't show intentionality in the failure to act doesn't necessarily prove that it was intentional. Well, in terms of that, what we have here, for example, is Mr. Collins was given two opportunities, or the record shows that there are two opportunities for Mr. Collins to provide answers to these very questions. The most significant of those responses was in the Federal district court, where the Federal district judge, in fact, issued a show-cause order to Mr. Collins, asking him to respond specifically to Mr. Holland's allegations. And in that response, Mr. Collins completely ignored all of Mr. Holland's allegations. He never denied that being instructed to file the petition. He never denied that he had, in fact, informed Mr. Holland that he wouldn't — that he would file the petition. He never denied any of the allegations with regard to the fact that Mr. Holland wanted that Federal habeas petition filed on time. He just went on to address it. Scalia. That's the case in every case where the lawyer is negligent and doesn't do something that should have been done. He's assured the client, I'll take care of your case, and he doesn't do it. That's all that's happened here. This goes beyond a case of mere or garden-variety negligence that some of the courts have addressed, because here we have a combination of not only a failure — we have the failure to notify Mr. Holland that the State supreme court had, in fact, denied its opinion, despite repeated instructions from Holland to Mr. Collins that he file his petition. Mr. Holland wrote — The facts here are quite extreme, but I am troubled by where you think the line should be drawn. If it is just mere negligence, would that be enough for equitable tolling? No. Courts, and this Court in Lawrence has held, for example, that mere negligence is not sufficient. But what we have here certainly is — Well, if it does, the difference between mere negligence and gross negligence, one of the things I remember most clearly from torts in law school is that that's pretty — that's an ephemeral distinction. But that's the one you think we should draw between mere — if it's gross negligence, then there's equitable tolling. If it's mere negligence, it's not. Well, we know certainly that the floor from cases from this Court and from other courts is this mere or garden-variety negligence. But when you get to other factors — Why should that be? Two cases, two criminal defendants. One spends a lot of time trying to find the most competent lawyer he can, and he does. He finds a highly skilled lawyer who makes one little mistake and it's negligent. The other doesn't care. He gets a lawyer that's really incompetent and the lawyer is gross negligence. You would be penalizing the client who exercised the most diligence under your rule. I don't understand the justice of that. It seems to me that the first client should be better off, not worse. And maybe this is for your friend on the other side to answer as well as I do, but I'm not sure even following Justice Alito's initial line of questioning, we can distinguish between gross and mere negligence, that it's even fair that we do so. Well, this Court — I didn't mean to interrupt his line of questioning, but it seems to me consistent with it. This and other courts have been able to draw that line. And, of course, you have to look at the specifics of each particular case, because not only — What's the point? What's the justice in doing that? Well, the way the law — Other than to just limit the number of cases in which we're going to set aside convictions. Well, in some circumstances, courts have just said, 
unfortunately, you lose. Your attorney didn't commit. It was just a mere mistake. But what we have here, of course, is not — we don't have a mere mistake. We have a confluence of these particular factors. And I think one of the more salient points that distinguishes um, Mr. Holland's case, for example, from Lawrence and from the situation in Coleman, is that Mr. Holland tried to rid himself of Mr. Collins on numerous occasions while this case was in state court. In Lawrence and in Coleman, the petitioners were not allowed to be free of their lawyers. They accepted those lawyers' representation. They accepted their representation. And the acts and omissions that occurred in Lawrence and in Coleman were attributed to to the petitioners in those cases. Here, however, um, by contrast, uh, Mr. Holland did everything he could, he could to be reasonably are, to be are free you, of. Are you suggesting that there should be a different standard for those uh, habeas petitioners who are whose counsel is appointed for them by the state or by the federal government as opposed to just a lawyer they hire? That's what I'm hearing you say. No, and I didn't mean All to right, So if the standard is going to be the same, I, I go back to Justice Alito's question, which is the Eleventh Circuit is saying negligence, gross negligence, the line is too fine to draw. But there is a difference in a line between negligence, however one defines it, and an intentional, bad faith, dishonest, conflicted malfeasance. Correct. All right. Um, why isn't that a more workable line, given that um, you can't have equitable tolling without exceptional circumstances? Correct. And I, but I think each — well, certainly those were some of the uh, uh, individual factors that the Eleventh Circuit uh, discussed when saying gross negligence isn't enough. Um, I think in Mr. Collins' case — You haven't case, argued why not, is what I'm saying to you. If, if exceptional circumstances has to mean something that really makes something exceptional, why is negligence of any variant exceptional? Because when you look at, for example, in this particular case, when we're talking about an exceptional circumstance, you're talking about a lot of times, and courts have done this, is the confluence of what the attorney did or didn't do as, versus what the petitioner did. So we have, of course, along the lines of the extraordinary circumstances here, we have the petitioner's diligence. And in some respects, they dovetail. And I think what the Eleventh Circuit did was say, we don't care what the petitioner did. We don't really care what the lawyer did. Anything the lawyer did, unless the lawyer was mentally ill or had divided loyalties, then that's — those are the only factors that were going to be considered in terms of equitable tolling. But that is — that is a — that's antithetical to the very nature of equity. Of course, we've, we've never held that equitable tolling for anything is available under this uh, statute of limitations here. That's correct. This Court, however — And why should it be? It it seems to me this is not like the ordinary statute of limitations where it says, you know, the statute is five years and courts make all sorts of necessary exceptions to the five years. But here you have a statute that that provides exceptions. For example, um, the limitation period shall run from the latest of — the date on which the impediment to filing uh, an application created by state action in violation of is removed. In other words, we're not we're going to toll it for that particular uh, event. Uh, the date on which the constitutional right asserted was initially recognized by the Supreme Court. We're going to toll it for that. The date on which the factual predicate of the claim or claims presented could have been discovered through exercise of due diligence. Many of, many of the equitable uh, uh, tolling. Uh, uh, holdings involve precisely that. We'll toll it since you couldn't have found out about the violation within the statutory period. But all of these things are handled already in 2244D. Why should we, why should we uh, assume the right to create some additional exceptions from the, uh, from the one-year period? Well, with all due respect, I don't uh, concur with the premise that those four particular subsections of the 2244D are exceptions or, to- or are tolling provisions. Indeed, in the, this Court in Jimenez said that those four, A, B, C, and D, are — How many circuits have held that there is equitable tolling? Eleven circuits. All of these circuits, and the only circuit that hasn't held that is the D.C. Circuit, where it remains an open question. So all of the circuits that have addressed — Then it's a question of what are the exceptional — circumstances and whether it has to be something 
deliberate, which is what the, as I understand it, the Michigan Court of Appeals said, yeah, if it's bad faith, um, then if it was a lie, deception. Correct. And so in fact, they're, they're drawing the, the line between um, intentional and and without intending, but just being careless. Correct. And certainly here, I think, you know, we have what they deem to be gross negligence, which I, I think certainly has an element of, let's say, for example, to use the term recklessness. I mean, we've got six or seven circuits which have addressed this particular issue in terms of this line between mere negligence and and something more than that. And those circuits have all, in the 13 or 14 years since EDPA has been around, all been able to effectively deal with these particular cases on their particular facts. We have a case this afternoon in, involving uh, uh, an opinion of ours uh, uh, named McNally, which held that uh, there's, there's no such thing as uh, a, a, a fraud action uh, for a right to uh, honest services. How many of the courts of appeals had held that there did exist such a right when we held that there didn't in McNally? I'm not, I'm not familiar. Every single court of appeals that had faced it had held that there was such a right. So the mere fact that you have 11 court of appeals that have, have, have found uh, uh, that they have extraordinary power, judges like to find that they have power, and uh, that doesn't necessarily make it right. Well, and, and it I also assumes that McNally was correctly decided, and I, I don't think it was. May I ask you another question? Yes, uh, sir. Uh, prompted by Justice Kennedy's question. Have any of the circuits taken a look at the probable merit of the underlying claim in evalu- evaluating the issue? In this particular case? or in No, not cases? in this particular case. But, see, Justice Kennedy says it's equally unjust to the client, whether it's negligence or gross negligence. And I'm just asking whether in any of the reviews of these, this issue that you're familiar with, have they sometimes looked at the probable merit of the claim? Because if there was merit, why well, you were more disturbed about an attorney negligence than whereas a frivolous claim, they wouldn't be. But do you know if, if any of them take a look at that at all? There are certainly some cases that address the tolling and then, of course, address the, um, the merits of the petition. I don't know that there are, are any that, that link the two. But certainly, if you have, for example, the, the respondent has argued that the floodgates are just going to open, but certainly one of, the, one of the ways that a federal district court can deal with this and has dealt with this in the past 13 years is to look at the petition. And if the petition raises something that's so palpably merit, meritless, you don't even need to get to anything about whether it's timely. Just, just, just dismiss the, the petition because, of course, the vast majority of cases um, that EDPA addresses in this particular chapter are non-capital cases and are pro se cases. I, I looked in the brief to see if there was a reference to the merits, underlying merits of the case. Can you just tell me very quickly what the key arguments are, if, if, you, if we ever reach the merits? In the petitioner's case? Yeah. He had, well, there were a number of issues that he raised on um, direct appeal. There was issues regarding counsel. Uh, for example, I know in the post-conviction motion, one of the key issues was he had a, what's termed in Florida, a Nixon issue, which is where counsel conceded some of the elements of the crime. Well, I, I should probably take your time with that. I'll look at the state record. Mr. But, Sher, but, one, one point that you didn't mention, uh, but you did, I thought, uh, stress it in your brief, was that counsel here said, oh, the deadline had run even before I was engaged, even before I was appointed to represent this man. So there was nothing that I could do for him because the time had already expired. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. What happened is that that particular explanation came up after the fact. Um, I think what's significant about that, number one, is that his explanations have been a moving target to a large extent. But what's, what's even more important is that none of that information was ever imparted to Mr. Holland while the case was pending. While, while Mr. Collins was providing assurances and reassurances to Mr. Holland about, don't worry, uh, your state post-conviction motion will be filed on time, your federal rights will be honored, everything will be done, your appeal will be taken. Once we're done in the Florida Supreme Court, we'll go off to the federal district court. At no time did Mr. Collins ever say, we've got a big problem here. The statute may have run, and so we need to start thinking in advance of ways to deal with this. For example, 
if Mr. Collins truly believed that the statute had already run, the day the Florida Supreme Court issued that decision, he should have been in federal court filing something right away. Could you just tell me in a sentence or two what test you think we should apply for equitable tolling? What is necessary in order for there to be equitable tolling? Your Honor, I think the, the test is the test that this Court has applied, which is in Pace and in Lawrence, which is extraordinary circumstances coupled with diligence. I think under those particular — coupled with diligence. The what, are, diligence. what does extraordinary circumstances mean? It's, it's, it's a case-by-case case type of issue. It's because it's an equitable remedy. It's not something that's susceptible to rigid rule, rules, which, of course, is the problem with the Eleventh Circuit's categorical exclusion of a particular large chunk of, of, of misconduct on part of the attorney. But certainly here, what we have in extraordinary circumstances, we have a lack of notice to the petitioner that his State court uh, uh, opinion had been uh, issued, that they had affirmed that the mandate had come out, and a failure to communicate, wholesale failure to communicate, bordering on, in fact, abandonment. Well, that has nothing to do with, with, with what caused what caused the uh, inability to, uh, to bring the habeas action. Well, and, and All of that is, is preliminary to that. This may have been a very irresponsible lawyer, but that has nothing to do with the event that, the simple event, failure to file in that, what, what, 30-day period, which uh, — 14 days. 14 days. Uh, it seems to me uh, — Extraordinary means unusual. So you say any unusual event is, is a possible. Well, I think the any one unusual event is a possible for a court to say, oh, yeah, it says a year, but uh, this is unusual, so uh, we'll give you a year and a half. Well, I think what we have here is what makes this case, I think, unusual, and it's the first type of case that this Court has seen, is under these circumstances you have this confluence of events. And I think what makes this case, what sets this case apart from the other ones that this Court has seen and that certainly other courts have seen is, for example, it's extraordinary or it was diligent for Mr. Holland to have asked the Florida Supreme Court on two occasions to rid himself of Collins. And he asked to well, proceed the, per the, se. The client, this client was sort of a pesky client, but, but uh, apparently knew a lot more about EDPA than most people generally do. I mean, it was not exactly an ordinary term. In, right. And had a lot of time to devote to it. And, 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 and suppose you have a client who's just bewildered. He's never, he doesn't know EDPA. He doesn't know federal court. Why, why should he be any worse position than this client? Well, it seems to me it would be the other way around. This, this fellow knew enough that he, if he'd really just done a little bit more, he would have, he, well, he tried to file a petition, but he, he might have done a little bit more. But, well, I think but, but, but the, the, the uninformed client, the ignorant client, could never approach this. I don't know why he shouldn't be more protected than, than your client, which I goes back to Justice Alito's question. I, I'm, I'm not sure how we draw this line. I think the problem we have here with Mr. Holland is that the more diligent he was, the more the respondent and the lower courts have said he should have done. And so he did X, Y, and Z. They say you should have done A, B, and C. But what I think is, is, the, is significant here is he was stuck with this lawyer. He tried to get rid of the lawyer. The state filed motions saying, you can't, not only can you not fire him, you can't file a pro se motion because you're represented by the lawyer. So all Mr. Holland hears is from the courts is that you can't speak to us and we can't speak to you. So he's stuck. And then, of course, he's writing to the Florida Supreme Court clerk, begging for information. In fact, in footnote 11 of but the But he never asked... Um, he wrote to the clerk, but he never asked to be informed when the judgment came down. Well, what we have, Your Honor, is if you look on page 11, um, in footnote 11, Mr. Holland wrote a letter to the Florida Supreme Court clerk, uh, the, the, toward the end of which he says, I'm not trying to get on your nerves. I would just like to know exactly what is happening with my case on appeal to the Supreme Court of Florida. And so we certainly have the clerk's office, and again, that was on page 11, Footnote 11. It's also at the Joint Appendix at 146 to 147. What we have here is uh, the petitioner putting the Florida Supreme Court on explicit notice that he's having a problem with this lawyer. And, and further earlier in that particular letter, he apologizes to the clerk, saying, I'm sorry to pester you with these, with these requests, but if I had a lawyer who was responding to my letters and who was listening to me and who would send me the documentations, I wouldn't have to be bothering you. But this is the situation that I'm in. And then, of course, he tries to not only have Mr. Collins substituted, but he asks to go pro se, 
That's an extraordinary circumstance. And what makes it even further more extraordinary is the State coming in and saying, no, you can't not only do that, but you're not even allowed to file the paperwork asking to do that. And, in fact, when Mr. Holland did file his pro se petition in Federal District Court, the State moved to strike it because he was represented by, by counsel. And so — This case, uh, different if the filing error — I understand there was a lot going on, but the lawyer just miscalculated the days, was off by one day. This case comes out the other way, in your view, right? I think not only under my — I think certainly courts have, have discussed this, that that's just, that's just an unfortunate mere mistake. But I think certainly we don't have that under the facts of this case. There's never been any suggestion that there was any miscalculation. We just have a complete abandonment by, by the — You say complete abandonment, but this lawyer — filed a whole lot of things on behalf of this client. He missed a very critical thing, the federal habeas filing. But it's not abandonment of a client in the sense of not doing anything for the client. Um, so it goes back to my beginning question, which is, where's the line drawn between the types of negligence and what the circuit suggested, which is some sort of intentional malfeasance. And I didn't mean to suggest, when I, when I use the word abandonment, I, I'm referring to, of course, in terms of abandonment with regard to preserving or enforcing the assurances that Collins had made with respect to filing the petition. And, of course, he also had told that Mr. Holland that he would inform him of the Florida Supreme Court's decision, because that, of course, is the triggering date. We have Mr. Holland, who had already been, you know, asked his lawyer you know, please file certain issues in my case, and please keep me informed. And those two promises and assurances were not kept by the lawyer. Mr. Holland at that point has reason to be concerned that the additional promise, which is I will file on time, was not going to be honored. And so Mr. Holland embarked on a series of diligent steps in order to get some information, but he didn't know where to turn. And then, of course, for example, he writes to the clerk's office of the Supreme Court Sometimes they send him information. Sometimes they tell him to send a check. He doesn't know. He's not getting any consistency, and he's certainly not getting any response from his attorney. Then he files these motions in the State Supreme Court, which are opposed by the State as nullities because he's represented by counsel. He then writes to the Florida Supreme Court saying, can you give me the uh, information about your website? Maybe I can have some friends look up this case. Because, of course, he knows at this point that there's a problem, and he knows that the triggering date for the filing of the federal petition is the denial by the Florida Supreme Court and the issuance of the mandate. And you, you, are, you seem, from what you just said, to be relying on a distinction between paid counsel, who is just as careless, and court-appointed counsel, because in the one case, the client has picked that attorney, and in the other case, the client was given this attorney by the state, so I think you're suggesting that the state has some responsibility when it provides the counsel. But before you, you said, no, your answer would be the same if you were not making a distinction between court appointed and paid counsel. I think that the distinction that I was making, I'm not saying that there's a difference in terms of paid or appointed counsel, but here where you have appointed counsel, I think one of the extraordinary factors is the state coming in and, and moving to strike these pro se pleadings, telling Mr. sending the signal to Mr. Holland that you're stuck with Collins, you can't speak to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can't speak to you. Everything has to be funneled through your lawyer. And, of course, the ironic thing is that had Mr. Holland been uh, permitted to proceed pro se, he would have gotten copied with the decision by the Supreme Court of Florida. He would have gotten copied with the mandate. And then he would have known when the mandate issued. And, and as we know, when he found out, I mean, the other extraordinary factor here is that when he found out that this had happened, he prepared that petition that day and mailed it the next day. This is not somebody who sat on his rights. He didn't start complaining and writing letters and, and bemoaning his situation. He took action, which also distinguishes this case. I from guess I, have, I understand what the, the cases have said. I, I have trouble understanding why that should make a difference, why 
that should be so pertinent, why he should be in better shape than somebody who says, look, I don't know anything about this. I need a good lawyer. This is what I get. I'm, I'm trusting you. Tell me what I should do, and I put, leave it in your hands. And, and that person is in somehow worse shape. Well, because in Lawrence and in, in, in Coleman, this Court had, had said that that made a difference. In Lawrence, this Court had said Lawrence was out of luck because it's not like he asked for another lawyer or asked to proceed pro se, and so, and so Lawrence was stuck. I would respectfully reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. McCarr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case, we believe, is decided by one principle. Yeah, yes, it's just an information question before you. Are the post-conviction lawyers in these cases that are appointed, are they compensated by the State? Yes, they are. They are. Yes. Um, and uh, also, just in the course of your argument, how, how often do these deadlines missed A in capital cases, B in EDBA cases? Do you have any statistics on that, or can you tell us from your experience? I can tell you anecdotally, the attorneys that handle these cases in Florida, that the equitable tolling issue comes up with some regularity. I'm aware of three cases just in Jacksonville, where I live, where the district judge there has had evidentiary hearings and has looked at these equitable tolling issues. In Florida, we have 394 individuals on death row, and those cases are at various stages in the litigation. So there is a certain amount of that that goes on. As to non-capital cases, we know that the system is flooded with habeas petitions. Obviously, most of those are unrepresented. Uh, but there still is, in those cases, a, a study I saw recently, a 2007 study from Vanderbilt University, that about 20 percent of those cases uh, are dismissed on statute of limitations grounds. I'm inferring from that that there is some equitable tolling action going on there. But the, the, the specific amount, we're not sure. But certainly in both the capital and non-capital area, this is an issue. And if I could get to the uh, standard here, obviously we're asking this Court to use the analysis it has done in other cases to find that there is no equitable tolling whatsoever. You, we, you mean to apply that uh, earthquake, fire, flood, mad postman, burns mail truck, etc.? Precisely, Your Honor. I mean, whether Even if it's a, a terrible earthquake, all these people just out of luck. Well, well, there are some certainly safety valves if there's a, a natural disaster. Some. Why? 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 National disaster? Yep. You say no equitable tolling? They're out of luck. Well, well for example, you know, the rules of federal procedure were recently amended to allow uh, for late filing when the courthouse is inaccessible. The statute. Precisely, Your Honor, and we think. And so, you, are you read the statute to say in some cases you could do it? If you're going to read it in some cases, you could do it. Then I guess we're at a discussion of is this one of those cases? Well, two responses. Number one, we do not believe that equitable tolling was intended by Congress under this complex statute of limitations for all the reasons set out in our brief. So that's earthquake, fire, flood, uh, etc. Exactly, and it, it leads to the same result. It seems to, to the same result as this court came to in Beggarly and Brockcamp. Uh, where the, if Congress intended that to be the case, that's the case. What if the lawyer lies to the client? The client says, my time is running out. Um, have you filed my, uh, my federal habeas petition? And the lawyer says, yes, I filed it, and here it is. And it has a, uh, a forged date stamp on it. No equitable tolling there? Well, under our position that Congress intended to draw a very clear line, no. If the, if the court assumes or decides there is some sort of equitable tolling, then that's a different case. And in those situations where there's something beyond the incompetence of the lawyer, and that's our rule, if the, if the court decides there is equitable tolling or assumes it exists, it has to be that the rule that the incompetence of the post-conviction counsel cannot be a basis for relief. That's what this court has essentially said in Lawrence and also in Coleman, and also what Congress inferentially said in, in, uh, in 2254-I. So under those circumstances here, our rule works because you don't get into this gradations of negligence. You know, is it gross negligence? Well, how gross? And at the bottom line here, in this particular case, of course, and the Court has asked these questions here, is what really happened in this case? All you had was a Lawrence error, which was — well, Why should it matter? It's certainly unusual. Isn't that what we're after? One, is he diligent? Answer, yeah, he's been diligent. Two, is it extraordinary? I would think it was fairly extraordinary that a person who writes these letters to counsel and so forth, then the, the thing isn't filed. Is that extraordinary or not? Whether, whether it was his fault, whether he himself was kidnapped, I mean, maybe it wasn't the counsel's fault. You can imagine a lot of circumstances. But the question, I would think, is, is it extraordinary? And is it fair? 
Well, the, the answer is, is, is it extraordinary? The answer is no. Uh, this is a common Council in Florida uh, uh, often, uh, when uh, miss deadlines and so forth, when their counsel, when their client specifically says to them, even a few weeks before, by mail, several times, please file such and such, it's not extraordinary in Florida? It's not just Florida, it's nationwide. There's, there's problems with this complex statute of limitations. We have a problem with the bar, don't we, if, if, if the if, — if, <laughs> Well, there, there, there has been no bar discipline, to my knowledge, for missing a deadline, and that, and this court has held that it is not an extraordinary circumstance in law. The only I, I, I didn't you say there has been discipline, or there there ha, to my knowledge, there has not been for missing if, the if deadline. If we, or probably be the Congress, assuming some rulemaker had authority to do this, would it make sense to say that the state is going to be subject to equitable tolling on a rather uh, uh, broad standard that we're going to give equitable tolling often? unless the state has attorney discipline procedures so that this happens only once and then the attorney can no longer practice in the federal court. Well, I, I suppose it's a matter of Obviously what we're looking for is some sort of a rule to keep the deadline uh, and if we're going to accommodate your uh, friend on the other side to have, to have some rule about ex- exceptional, uh, exceptional cases. Well, perhaps something along those lines legislatively might be, be considered, but, but in the end what we have here is a, Garden variety, attorney negligence, miscalculating, missing a deadline. The Isn't there at least one additional thing here? Uh, Holland filed a request, a pro se request, to be relieved of Collins's representation, and that was rejected by the that was rejected by the court because he was pro se, and therefore he couldn't ask, he couldn't file something himself. Well, let, let me clarify that because there's a misconception going on here. In the Florida Supreme Court post-conviction process, Collins, I'm sorry, Holland um, twice filed motions to remove Collins. Importantly, Holland never asked to go pro se. That is incorrect. If you look at the joint appendix 134 and 149, those are the two uh, pro se filings that uh, Holland made here. In both of those, he said, I'm having a conflict with my lawyer. My lawyer won't do what I want him to do. I want a new lawyer. And that's all he said. I want a new lawyer. He never was that denied on the ground that he was pro se? The first motion uh, was stricken. Uh, it was then this, uh, denied because he was represented by counsel at that point. Keep in mind, this is in the state post-conviction process. This is not where the federal uh, EDPA deadline and so forth is being kicked about. In fact, there's really no discussion whatsoever about what the actual deadline to file this petition was at all in the record. The only time Holland asked to go pro se in any court filing is after he filed the pro se petition in federal court, the, 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 the untimely one. He there, shortly thereafter filed an emergency motion to relieve a colleague. What, what I don't understand is how can a, how can a client request to, to have, uh, to be relieved of representation if the client can't file that motion pro se? I, I understand the other things, but I don't understand why, how, how you can deny the request to get rid of this lawyer, uh, unless we, he has to have the lawyer file the motion for him? Well, I, I, no. I, I think that certainly the filing of the motion, uh, I think perhaps it was an, it shouldn't have been stricken the first time, but the court then on the merits denied it the second time. And keep in mind, I, I forgot who alluded to it, this has been somewhat of an unusual case from the outset in that uh, if you look at the three Florida Supreme Court opinions that have been issued in this case, it shows you know, that the first trial, uh, Holland absented himself, from the tri- absented himself from the trial, and he had to watch on circuit, uh, uh, closed-circuit TV because he was being very difficult. And then uh, in the uh, second trial, he, we had two Ferretta hearings amounting to hundreds of pages in which the Florida Supreme Court then said, well, you know, he, he wants to represent himself, but he can't conduct himself properly and so forth. Uh, and also there's the issue of his... His, there's a mental issue there as well that he's raised on appeal uh, as well. So the court, the Florida courts, are sort of put in this difficult posture of saying, we want you to have counsel. We needed you to have counsel because we want you to have effective representation. But then uh, throughout the process here, this, it's been a difficult, difficult number of decades, essentially, uh, in this situation. So I think it's an unfair characterization to say that the Florida courts and also the Office of Attorney General, who file, routinely moves to strike these, it's not because we're trying to deny anyone's day in court. It's because you have a lawyer and they have to speak to the lawyer, and the hybrid representation is impermissible. So uh, we think back the, the, just state, the state has no responsibility, even though it made this appointment. 
So you agree that no difference whether it was paid counsel, somebody that the, that the um, defendant picked to represent him, and someone that he just had to take because that's what the State gave him. Exactly. And, and that's the, the way the Court's decision in Coleman has allocated the, the burns and the risks. I mean, what the Court said was, okay, if it's direct appeal where the State is charged with that responsibility, that's one thing. But when it's post-conviction, it's shifted. The whole paradigm, the whole structure is flipped the other way, and you, the petitioner, bear the burden and not the State. And this is important under EDPA because EDPA — Under on direct appeal, if counsel uh, conducted himself this way, the State would — um, you'd have to get relief because the state would have the burden, but not not on collateral. Is that what you're saying? Sure. On direct appeal, if the lawyers deemed to be ineffective, then that would be a constitutional error, and that would be subject to some sort of relief. But it flips in the post-conviction stage, as this court has held in Coleman. Counsel, I'm concerned about some of the situations Justice Breyer mentioned. You know, if there's an earthquake, a plane crash, um, but. The law seems to be focusing on other things when it's talking about extraordinary circumstances. I, like here, we're talking about how diligent he was in pursuing his lawyer. There seems to be a, a disconnect there. I don't know why. I mean, assuming we're going to have, for argument, equitable tolling, what should we be looking at? This, the unusual nature of the situation that comes up or whether you've got a pesky client? Well, I, I think two responses there. Obviously, we believe that attorney incompetence or so forth cannot be a basis for equitable tolling. These other situations about natural disasters and uh, hypotheticals where some, you know, very unusual, bizarre situation comes in uh, that's external to the attorney-client relationship, uh, perhaps those, those could be considered. But we believe that, that Congress, through its purpose in enacting this statute of limitations, a complex one that has exceptions, that, uh, that is designed to alleviate the burdens and delays, its intent was not to allow equitable tolling because we Well, didn't. but it legislated against the background of cases like Irwin that stated the general proposition is unless Congress says otherwise, there is equitable tolling. But that can be rebutted. That can be, be rebutted, and we believe has been rebutted by the, the record here, which shows that these are precisely the kind of delays that Congress intended to avoid by having a strict one-year statute of limitations. Uh, that, that there's burdens put on not just the states, but the courts that I what I worry about is that you're confusing the, or I perceive, confusing the fact that um, lawyer negligence may not be the type of situation that Congress was looking at with the hypotheticals that Justice Breyer um, listed, which are a different kind of situation. And you're trying to pigeonhole both and say Congress didn't intend for both to be covered. And yet you suggested a little later that they may have intended what Justice Breyer um, was thinking about. I, I don't see anything in the structure of the statute that would preclude what Justice Breyer listed. Well, so what can we read? to suggest that — forget about the lawyer malfeasance. Let's talk just about equitable tolling sure. in its well, traditional sense. Most of the cases in equitable tolling, by the way, have to do with court errors. <coughs> sure. And, and what, what we're suggesting is that under the structure of the Brockamp decision, what the Court looked at there to determine when there is no equitable tolling intended by Congress, that here, likewise, there is no equitable tolling. And as the Court held in Brockamp, the fact that there may be unfairness in individual cases was the price Congress was willing to, to pay, the trade-off it was willing to allow, to have a habeas system that was functioning. Now, assuming that that uh, position is, is rejected by the Court or the Court assumes equitable tolling, the next question is what, what should be allowed. And we believe it has to be exceptionally narrow. And certainly in this case, in this case is all about attorney negligence or attorney gross negligence, those th — those — sort of circumstances are not enough. And for well, why could, could you not say here, I mean, the key sentence, I take it, is the 11th Circuit, uh, and it says, no allegation of lawyer negligence or failure to meet the standard of care, none, without proof of bad faith, dishonesty, mental impairment on the part of the lawyer, could ever qualify. Now, that's what we just say, no, no, that isn't so. Sometimes it could. 
when combined with other circumstances, and then go back and let them — I don't know what this particular individual petitioner's prior conduct has been. I understand the problems that you have. But do I, I guess you're going to say no to this, but, but it's a little hard to see why you couldn't have a narrow standard but just not rule out uh, the possibility. It's under certain circumstances, just negligence or even less. Maybe the lawyer wasn't even at fault. Maybe he got kidnapped. You know, I mean, there are odd things that happen in life. And, and just say, go look for this. Uh, see if it's truly extraordinary, if it's fair, if he was diligent. What about well, that? Well, well, we agree with the Eleventh Circuit standard to the extent it says you know, that this sort of attorney negligence, gross negligence, incompetence is not enough. Where we differ from the Eleventh Circuit is we're concerned, based upon our pragmatic day-in, day-out uh, handling of these cases, that when you say dishonesty well, or a conflict, that those concepts can be conflated into things that they are not, particularly when these communications between lawyer and client are outside the state's view. We are not privy to what goes on between lawyer and client. The lawyer says, I will do this, says it verbally, or maybe even in writing. We don't know about that. We're not privy to all that. And it creates this potential when we, when we allow the standard, as the 11th Circuit held, we allow the standard to gravitate away from its core purpose and allows it to be uh, used to sort of game the system in a way to, to gain an advantage. That's why we're concerned about any degree of attorney uh, misconduct or, or behavior, because it could be easily. Do you have any idea, um, before the 11th Circuit announced its standard, how many habeas petitions were told by district courts in that in your in Florida, on the basis of equitable tolling? Um, uh, that that they permitted petitions to go forward after the statute of limitations. I, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any data on that. There are not that many. So would there be, I mean, what I'm actually worried about is not a lawyer being kidnapped. I'm actually worried that can happen in a person's life. He gets deathly ill. His wife gets sick. Something happens to the children. Some very unusual thing comes along at the last minute, and all the plans go awry. And, and, and have a little bit of flexibility in this statute to take care of those very unusual human circumstances seems a reasonable reading of it. You say it's not because? Well, we say it, it's not because Congress intended not to have equitable tolling. Then to the extent it did, um, it could have drafted something along the lines of what's in 2263, which was the, the next chapter. It's the companion chapter that says instead of having 365 days with no equitable tolling, you can have 180 days and 30 days for good cause if, if there's a deadline. You're not, you're not worried about Justice Breyer's case of the really extraordinary circumstance where everybody would say, well, that's, you know, we understand. You're worried that if you create an exception that all sorts of other stuff will come in. And so why isn't the answer to that concern that you've got an unusual case here where you do have the client saying, do this, do this, do this, and the lawyer doesn't? Well, well under these facts — It's very hard to argue against against equity, against equitable tolling. But uh, at the same time, I think you do need a constraining principle that it doesn't uh, do away with the statute of limitations. So why isn't what we have here good enough? Meaning the Eleventh Circuit standard? Meaning the fact that you've got a client who is constantly uh, telling the lawyer, do this, you know, get it done, doesn't get the judgment. And, you know, it's not just your run-of-the-mill case where the lawyer happens to miss a deadline. Well, well that goes to the issue that, uh, of, di uh, not, uh, of diligence, of course, which is not the, the issue we're looking at. We're looking at the extraordinary circumstances, not the diligence. The extraordinary circumstance has to be something that the, the uh, attributable to the lawyer or something along those lines. We're, we're not — we'll concede diligence for the moment and say here it's what the lawyer did, as Lawrence held, that he missed the deadline. In fact, this case, uh, you know, Lawrence, obviously, it was 364 days before they even filed the state post-conviction motion. That the lawyer in that case was an appoint, appointed for 300 days, and the state post-conviction uh, process was sort of in, in a disarray. And all those things that the court in Lawrence uh, said are not uh, uh, supportable for equitable tolling apply equally here. The only difference in this case is this allegation about he lawyer didn't communicate with his client. Well, if that becomes the governing rule, all is lost. Because attorney communication with client uh, is perhaps even more uh, amorphous a uh, concept uh, would, it could be based on verbal representations and so forth. So we're very concerned that it's not slip into that sphere where it can be uh, easily uh, manipulated for the advantage of getting some sort of delay. And as I say, uh, the, the, the analysis here of purpose of EDPA, 
structure of EDPA and the burdens. As I say, the, the burdens are, are important to the State and to, to the court system. I was looking at that recent study, the 2007 study, that seemed to suggest that uh, EDPA uh, is basically the, when these cases are being filed in federal district court, um, it's taken a year and a half to two, year, two, three years for them to be resolved. In this case, keep in mind, it took 18 months in the district court. 18 months in the 11th Circuit and then further. But that's that allowing the invocation of this doctrine, not just in this case, we're worried about the non-capital context as well, that that will somehow put, uh, put an end to uh, the, the importance of what Congress enacted. There is a pre-EDPA mentality out there, I'm afraid, and it's natural, it's understandable, we're all human. There's a pre-EDPA mentality of that there must be a remedy, there must be a, some equity uh, done. And, uh, and I think that sort of undergirds why perhaps most of the circuits have either assumed, or, you know, I think 11 have either assumed or adopted some sort of equitable tolling. I think they're at, waiting for this Court, which has left the question open to provide guidance in that issue, and we suggest that either there be no equitable tolling or that if there is to be equitable tolling, on the, on the circumstances of this case, it has to be extreme attorney misconduct or incompetence, and that just simply is not established on this record. What, why isn't it extreme attorney incompetence to miss a deadline? I mean, you either miss it or you don't. It's not going to get — why doesn't that qualify as extreme attorney misconduct? Well, I guess the, the short answer, of course, is the courts have said, no, that's not enough. We need something that's truly — Extreme, so, something far uh, from just missing a deadline. We probably all know lawyers who've missed deadlines. We all know lawyers who haven't communicated with their clients. Those things are ordinary, run-of-the-mill, happen everyday sort of events. It has to be something beyond that. I mean, it has to be something that's truly extreme uh, for the exception to kick give in. Me, give me an example. Well, I mean, I could, it's worse than missing the deadline. I mean, I, the example I've tossed about in our conversations is uh, is to say, well, what if? Uh, the post-conviction lawyer is bribed by the victim's family to not file something on time. I mean, well, you know, gosh, that strikes us all as just, that's... Uh, well, we don't, that's not negligence. No, no. Uh, but the question I, th I thought you were asking is, you know, how, how extreme can we think about you know, a situation? And, and so you're, you th it has to be criminal behavior? It, ha it has to be something beyond just... Attorney incompetence. What the court? I mean, that's a concept that we can get our arms around, and we certainly get into this line drawing of well, is a failure to communicate three or four times enough, or, or a failure to uh, uh, have a letter go to the client in response to, to uh, his request? Is that enough? May, may I ask another question? Doesn't go to the merits. I'm really curious. Are the, the lawyers selected for post-conviction work, which I understand now are compensated by the state, are they selected from the same panels as the lawyers that represent? Defendants generally and, uh, who are appointed by the state in criminal matters. Well, there's a, a, a collateral counsel registry list. Is it? There's, there's actually what they call CCRC. There's actually state lawyers around the state who provide this, and then there's a registry list as well. And they have to meet certain standards. As Chapter 27 of our Florida statutes set out the standards that the, these counsel have but to meet. The collateral counsel registry is a different group of lawyers than are generally appointed in criminal cases. Yes, I see. Well, Your Honors, if there's uh, no further questions, we ask that uh, the Court affirm the Eleventh Circuit below either on the basis that there's no equitable tolling or that on this record there's no basis for it under the attorney and confidence standard. Thank you. We have four minutes remaining. I just have a couple of brief points. Uh, first, to clarify, the respondent argued that Mr. Holland never asked to proceed pro se in the State Court, and that's just incorrect, and it's flatly contradicted by their brief on page 43, where they write, Holland moved to replace Collins with another attorney whom Holland, whom Holland presumably thought would raise any issues Holland desired, or to proceed pro se if substitute counsel could not be appointed. And I think, again, going back to um, one of the things that Justice Breyer was discussing with Respondent's Counsel, is I think that that — the problem with the Eleventh Circuit's analysis is this categorical exclusion. Equitable tolling and extraordinary circumstances have to be considered as a — consider all the circumstances. And so to, to categorically exclude uh, this one particular area, we submit is, is what the problem is here. And we also do have, um, contrary to what the respondent contended — But you um, would say it is — you could categorically excuse ordinary negligence as opposed to gross negligence. That's where courts, including this Court, have, have drawn the line. That seems to be the floor. 
Um, but, you know, obviously, when you get into the particular circumstances of a case, um, that's where a categorical rule excluding a particular type of area beyond just uh, garden variety neglect really that's the problem here is that that was antithetical to, to the notion of, of equity. And I just wanted to point out briefly that this record does avail itself of numerous instances where Mr. Holland had alleged that attorney lied to him. J.A. in the Joint Appendix on 170, uh, Mr. Holland writes that Mr. Collins lied to him. On the Joint Appendix on 194, that Mr. Collins deceived him and misled him what about when the, the petition lies? was going to be. What, what was, give me an example of a lie that he told. These were in the context of um, Mr. Collins telling Mr. Holland that he would protect his federal habeas rights. Let's not go without saying in every attorney, I and mean, every attorney presumably is, undertakes not to miss the statute of limitations. Is there a difference between the attorney who simply says nothing and then the attorney who says, yes, I'm not going to miss the statute of limitations? I think it makes it That's more, I think it makes it more extraordinary. And what makes that situation even yet more extraordinary is where the client has tried to rid himself of this lawyer on a number of occasions or to go pro se precisely because um, he's been experiencing these, these lack of trust and, and other problems in terms of these deceptions from his lawyer. So he was really hamstrung uh, by the time that uh, if I'm was worried, If I'm worried about the open-ended nature of what you're asking for, how — how would you state the test you would like in the most restrictive terms? I think in terms — I think the test would be appropriate what Justice Breyer articulated, which is — Hurricane or kidnapping? No, 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 no. Or the, the different one. Okay. The, the, the other test. The other test. We need a hurricane exception to Florida. But um, in terms of the Eleventh Circuit was incorrect in excluding this particular type of attorney misconduct and negligence because — that's antithetical to equity. And what so I think type, the, see, the, the, the problem comes up when you say this type of attorney. What is your test? What type of it? I certainly think, given the, the unique facts here, we have, again, the confluence of circumstances. We have the No, I know your questions will mean your client wins. Correct. But, I mean, can you articulate it more Because I'm very concerned that if you start saying, well, you can forgive it in equitable cases, every time a case comes up, you're gonna, there's going to be sympathy for the client. The lawyer goofed. Of course you don't want to penalize the client. But... Congress obviously had something more in mind. Well, but certainly, but the other part of the, of the test for equitable tolling is diligence. And I think when, when one looks at the, at, the, at the body of case law that's developed since 1997 on the issue of equitable tolling in EDPA, the vast majority of these cases um, are disposed of the fact that the petitioner is indiligent. Here, of course, the respondent, if I heard correctly, is now conceding that, that the petitioner was diligent. So there's certainly other ways to avoid even having to get to the question of, of, of exceptional circumstances. For example, just looking to the diligence prong. But here where you have the failure to notify, you have the failure to heed the instructions from the client, you have um, the client saying, you've lied to me, the client telling the state and the federal courts, this lawyer is not my agent anymore. I don't want him. I don't trust him. He's misled me. He's deceived me. All of those factors certainly go to a consideration of whether equitable tolling should be warranted. And the problem here is that the Eleventh Circuit said no, categorically no. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.